0: Well, if you take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 1, our text will be verses 1 through 4. I hear your chuckles. The difference between an atheist and one who believes in God is centered on the doctrine of providence and sovereignty. And what I mean by that is to believe in God who created all things, who is sovereign over all things, is to believe that he is actually right now holding all things together. In fact, when you look in the Old Testament, oftentimes we see almost a mocking of idols in regards to their lack of being sovereign in regards to God. Isaiah chapter 41 says this in verse 22, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. That is these idols. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. And this comes in the form of mockery towards the idols that would presume to have providence and control over all things. And as we come to the book of Hebrews this morning, and we look at these first four verses, we see seven statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we specifically look at the idea that he is providentially controlling all things. And so the doctrine of providence that we see so clearly in the Old Testament is applied to Christ, showing us that God is in control through his Son, this is important to think about the context to Hebrews. The context was to, to Hebrews was much like the context in which God reveals his providential sovereign control over history when he reveals himself to Ezekiel. Now you know in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel is introduced to God by this what seems to us a very strange picture of these wills and these creatures and the emphasis of the four creatures and moving four ways without the wheels spinning. It almost reads of some sort of spaceship but the picture is to Ezekiel that God is sovereign over all things and that this, this vision that he sees that it moves in all four directions is to show us the picture, show Ezekiel the picture that God was sovereign over not just Israel, but he was actually sovereign over Babylon. Now, why did God reveal himself to Ezekiel in such a way? to show him that he was sovereign and that uh, he was in control of all that they were experiencing. Well, the Israelites were in Babylonian captivity. They had faced defeat. They had been removed from the land that God had provided for them, and perhaps they thought God had abandoned them. And maybe some even began to think that the gods of the Babylonians had defeated Yahweh because he could not protect them. They were perhaps maybe looking to just abandon God altogether. And so what God does is he reveals himself to his prophet to show his prophet, I'm in control even over the gods of Babylon when you're in captivity by them. To bring his people that were held in captivity comfort. And this morning we're going to look at the same doctrine of providence. That's given to these Hebrews that are facing persecution, that are facing suffering. And in this, they were thinking about going back to their old ways. And God reminds them to say, you trusted in Christ and you're thinking about abandoning him. But you need to know something that even in your suffering and the, uh, and, and the threat of persecution, Christ is still sovereign right now. And that's the very picture we see. And we have three questions answered specifically by our text. And the first question is this, is does Christ actively rule? That is to say, does Christ rule right now? Second question is, is what does Christ rule? What's his dominion? What's he rule over? And the third question is, how does Christ rule? But to get the context of the exact phrase we're looking at this morning, let us hear these first four verses. Here is the word of the Lord. Verse 1 of Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things This is the reading of God's Word, and the specific phrase we're looking at this morning is in verse 3, where it reads, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And so again, this, this answers three questions, and the first question is, Does Christ actively rule? Another way to ask this question, is Christ sovereign right now? Is Christ in charge right now? Well, you'll notice what the text teaches us is that he upholds. That is that right now, Christ is upholding. He's upholding something. It's something that he's doing, and it's to cause something to continue by sustaining or maintaining what one has created. That's what it means. It means he's sustaining or he's, he's continuing the maintenance of something. So you think about it in terms of creation. We are, we are creatures. We're part of that creation. You think of the grass, that is part of that creation. You think of everything literally that there is, that is creation. We perceive the laws of nature maintaining things. But what this text is actually telling us is that it is Christ that he himself is maintaining all things. Now, he does that maybe through what we perceive as being laws of nature, and if we drop something, we know that it falls. But, but how is it that you can read in the Old Testament that an axe head that sinks to the bottom of a body of water is raised to the top of that water to be collected again? That goes against the laws of nature that we recognize and we readily observe. Well, it's because a sovereign God can suspend that which we perceive as being normal. All things that there are, are maintained by Christ. And last night as we were doing our family worship, and we were beginning to explore what this meant. That we could blink. That we have a heart that's beating and working, that we breathe but there's somehow the trees and stuff for work with the environment and have we have oxygen. I can't explain that, so I won't look foolish by trying to act like I do. But you know what I mean, is we experience things right now that keep us alive. Well, it's Christ that is maintaining all things. All things continue to exist by Him. And this phrase here, That he upholds, to give you an illustration of it, the same word uphold is used in a familiar story of the Lord Christ. In Mark chapter 2, in verse 3, Jesus is preaching and we see that there is a group of men that says they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And that word carried is that same word that we see for upholds in Hebrews. So if you think of the picture, this paralytic man is completely dependent upon those that are carrying him. So if you can think of all things that exist, and Christ would be the picture of those men that are carrying that, we would be the paralytic man, which we are completely dependent in being held by Christ. Christ Himself upholds everything, and everything then is then dependent upon the one who is upholding them. This is the same word that's used for how Scripture comes about in Second Peter, in chapter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we see that as a, as a text that shows us that this Bible, the Word of God, is God's Word, because every word of it was written through men by God. He carried them along. And so that's what this picture means When we say that Christ upholds all things, and so this means this is by implication, creation, you and I, all that exist, cannot stand by itself, if the cause, that is God, through whom he also created the world in Christ, is removed, that's the first cause, as God ca- caused the creation to come about, if that cause is removed, so is its effect. And so then what that means is, if existence, that's what we're experiencing right now, we all exist, we, we are sitting there, we, we, we feel things, we, we know that we are alive, existence itself was brought in by a first cause and in order for the created world because it was created by that first cause it means it's dependent upon the one who created it it means that if he was to let go of it very existence itself would no longer be there would be no existence of anything that's the implication of it Colossians says it this way in chapter 1, verse 17, and he is before all things, which is speaking of the Son as eternal, and in him all things hold together. So, why is it that we're being held together from a molecular standpoint? We might see atoms and how they work together and all of that, but the ultimate example is that it is Christ himself that holds all those things together. Christ who created is the one who maintains all things. The the church father, Chrysostom, says this, all things created from nothing, which is everything, if not held together, they revert back to nothing. What a powerful statement about Christ, that he right now is holding all things together. And so we get into this idea of the doctrine of providence here. Providence is a word that's often used, often thrown around. People use it and abuse it, apart from Scripture. Some people use it as fate. It was my fate. And they, they think of some sort of force out there called providence that makes things happen. Well, technically speaking, according to God's Word, providence is God's active arrangement of all things that take place for the accomplishment of His purposes. That's the doctrine of providence. Providence is God's active arrangement of all things that take place for the accomplishment of His purpose. So what God decreed is, in eternity is realized in time by us. In other words, God's not just planning things by in a play-by-play situation and reacting and changing, but rather, He who is eternal and infinite has decreed all things, and then what we experience in real life history is God's providence. It's not a mere passive foreknowledge, whereas God saw what would happen, and that's how he knew, as if his knowledge was dependent upon his creation, but rather his knowledge is dependent upon his decree. That he said this is what would happen. And so when we think of providence, it's maintenance of the universe, it's the preservation of the universe, and it is the governance of, Of the universe. And you see this really clearly all throughout Scripture, but one one place that that it comes out really clearly is in Nehemiah in chapter 9, in verse 6, where it says, You are the Lord. You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. That is that God is the one who created, but that God also preserves all of them. And God is active in his rule And providentially, as we have seen, God rules through his son. And this is exactly what the prophecy of Christ says. In uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That government means dominion. That means that all that exists will be upon his shoulders. So does God actively rule, or does, as Hebrews says, it? does Christ actively rule right now? Well, if you're sitting here, and if you're breathing, and there's an existence of things, then the answer is yes, because if he didn't, we wouldn't exist. This brings us to our second question, which was really already answered in the first, but to make it clear, what does Christ rule over? Well, Nehemiah talked about, or uh, rather Isaiah spoke of his government, and that is his dominion, well, notice what it says in Hebrews. He upholds the universe. That is, he governs, he carries the universe. And it, the word universe is not actually in the Greek text. It's the word all. It's all. He ru- rules over all. It's just a general statement of, of all things. Universally, Christ rules. There's, there's nothing outside of his rule. But But what does that mean? Because we tend to make categories of things that... God is in charge of, but maybe he's not in charge of this. But what does the scripture say in regards to the words all? And I think we have to come to grips with it. The first thing that we see, and we've seen so clearly already... Is that he is sovereign and providentially ruling over creation and the preservation of the creation. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, we read Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Not only did you create, but it was by the the will of God that they are maintained, that they are preserved, that they are maintained and they are governed by His will He created and He holds over all of creation and the preservation of creation. We get that drilled in our head now. We got that. But here's something that's of great comfort for us is the civil realm. Oftentimes referred to as the civil magistrate, that is the rulers, the kings, you could think of it to mayors, to city councilmen, to those that are on school boards, to the president, he's actually governing all of that too. Notice what Proverbs 21, verse 1, just so very clearly states. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And you can just look at examples in the prophets in which God stirs up the king of another nation to go and invade his people, to punish his people, and then he uses another nation to punish those people for punishing his people. How does God do that? Well, he's providentially in charge of all things. All things are unfolding according to his perfect plan. He is sovereign over civil governments. He's also sovereign over what we call election and reprobation. In Romans chapter 9, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have, compa- I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He goes on, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. In other words, our very salvation is dependent upon God providentially ruling over things. Regeneration, by which we come to express faith in the Lord. In James chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That is that by his will he has regenerated a people. How do you regenerate yourself? That's like asking the question, how do you become born? You're the passive agent in that. You, You didn't do that. We're just all born. But you're passive in that. You didn't do anything to contribute to it. It's the same thing when we look at regeneration, but also sanctification works this way. And what is sanctification? If regeneration means to be born again, that is by which the Spirit of God does a work in our hearts, changing our heart, sanctification is the idea that our continuing Christian life, So sanctification is progressive throughout your Christian life where you're growing in the likeness of Christ. Well, how does that happen? Is Christ actually ruling over that, your sanctification? Well, notice what it says in Philippians chapter 2. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so much now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So if we could define sanctification as working out your salvation with fear and trembling, we see that, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. But how do I do that? How does that take place? Well, we see. For it is God. God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, God's sovereign and his providence is working in you to sanctify you as well. Do you know that the idea of suffering comes under God's sovereign will? That's something we might not like to think of. Maybe it makes us, we would think it would be easier to think of it as well, God wasn't sovereign over suffering, so we couldn't blame God. My friends, if God wasn't sovereign over suffering, then you have no hope that that suffering is working for good. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will. And suffering even is according to God's will. What about our life and our lot in life and what we experience in life? Does that come under the dominion of Christ as well? Well, James chapter 4, verse 15 says this in regards to the person that says, we're going to be here next year or we're going to go there next week. He says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I love it when I tell someone, I'm going to see you next week, and they respond to me, What? Lord willing. And we say that, but do we really believe that? That it is actually according to the Lord's will. Think about what it says in Acts chapter 18, verse 21. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Paul knew that it was a good desire to go back and return to Antioch. It was a godly desire to go back and be with that church, but he recognizes that it's entirely in the hands of a sovereign God that is in charge of, of all things. What about the small details of life, though? I mean, okay, I get it, the big things, that's under God's sovereign control, and what we experience is that God's providence the big things like he puts presidents in power and he he puts kings in power and stuff but and i get my salvation okay but what about the details of life what we experience in just day to day as you were walking down the sidewalk here to the, the church and maybe as you, you, you turn and look and you see a bird or you see a car drive by and you honk and it gabs your attention, is Christ really have dominion over that? Well, look at what Jesus says. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? The smallest details of our life are according to the providence of God. We live in an agricultural area, so we know that we're very much dependent upon the weather. What about the weather? Look what it says in Acts chapter 14, verse 17. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He recognizes that we're dependent upon harvest. Just because we go to a store and buy things uh, doesn't erase the fact that we are still dependent upon the harvest here today. The weather that brings it about and the harvest itself is actually under God's sovereign control. Maybe, perhaps you remember the story of Joseph in Egypt, and what does he warn Pharaoh of? What, what's coming? A time of famine. Why? Because there would be no harvest. Who brought that about? Who brought that about? Well, Genesis chapter 41 says this, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So when it says Christ upholds the universe and that underlying word is all, do we see the fullness of it? It literally means all. Now, there's nothing that's outside of, of Christ upholding and maintaining and preserving. And by the way, Christ claims this for himself, and the Jewish people recognize that he claimed this for himself and they want to kill him for it. In John chapter five and verse sixteen We read this, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. By the way, that's the turning point in the Gospel of John, where persecution comes out because Jesus works on the Sabbath, and what does he say about his work on the Sabbath? As my Father works, so do I. We keep coming back and returning to this theme of the nature of God, our triune God. And we see here in this passage that Jesus states the oneness of the Father and the Son in providentially ruling the universe. As my Father works, so do I. So what the Father does, he does through the Son by the Spirit. And I just repeat this again so that, that every time we come to these passages of the work of Christ, we see it through a Trinitarian lens because that's what the Scripture gives us. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Father is unbegotten, and the Spirit proceeds from both Father and Son. Their work is inseparable. Their work is one. And so providence itself is a work of the trust. God and scripture here specifically teaches us that this work comes through the Son, He upholds the universe, that is all He, the Son, does this. So, as you see so clearly in the Old Testament, the sovereignty of God. When we come to the New Testament we so, see so clearly that that sovereignty is manifested through the person the son the god man the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who upholds all things. Now we have to ask this question our final question is this is how then does Christ rule? How does Christ rule? Well, it tells us He rules by the word of His power. Now, all things that are upheld, which are all things, are by the word of His power. That is His command, or what we have already said, His decree. He called things into existence, and He, by that same calling, holds all. Things together. Things happen and things are maintained by Christ's word. This indicates the sovereignty of Christ. And specifically, when we think of sovereignty, sovereignty has to do with kingship. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, shows us very clearly uh, and emphasizes, I think, uh, most emphatically, the priesthood of Christ. And we see three offices that are traditionally given to Christ. The idea of priesthood, that he was prophet, and that he was king. Those are the three offices of Christ. Hebrews states most of all of those, all three of those, but most clearly his priesthood. But... What we've already seen is the prophet, in verse 2, that he has spoken to us by his Son. We see that already in the text, in these four verses, that Christ is identified as a priest, where it tells us that he made purification for sins. That emphasizes his priesthood. But here, what we're reading by the word of his power, is emphasizing that other office of Christ. So the prophet, the priest, is clearly identified. He is the final revelation of God. That is, he is a prophet. He makes purification for sins, that he is a priest. But that he upholds things by his word indicates that he is king, that he is sovereign. He is, as we see later, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is speaking of his coronation as king. But here we see that he is king. Now, the king, when you think of it in an earthly domain, he has dominion and controls those things that are in his dominion by his word. The king doesn't go out and fight the wars, but he commands and people go out and fight the wars. And a king, an earthly king, has limited sovereignty. What we see of Christ is not a limited, but defined by that word all, his sovereignty, his dominion, that which he has control over, by his word over all things. As we read this morning to open the worship service, Psalm 33, verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? Why should we all praise Him? Why should we fear Him? Why should we stand in awe of Him? Well, it tells us, For He spoke, and it came to be, He commanded, and it stood firm. In other words, He called you by the power of His Word into existence, and by the power of His Word as King of all things is maintaining you now. And so we're looking at this idea that he is providentially ruling. And specifically, this is the doctrine of providence as ruled by Christ. But we have to understand something about providence and sovereignty. They're oftentimes interchanged, they're not the same thing. Joel Beakey says the doctrine of providence stands upon God's sovereignty. And so, why. Christ can rule over everything is because he is king. And why it's by the power of his word is because he is king. His kingship, his sovereignty, are emphasized here that Jesus is almighty God. And you go back to the Old Testament. So often God reveals himself as almighty but what do we see here? Jesus is that Almighty God, and it's that power. What do we know of the power of God? Is it's uncontested, it's unlimited, it's unmeasurable power. We use one of those omni theological words omni omnipotence. His power cannot be measured, is it, it's without end. As God is infinite, His power is infinite, and notice how Jesus reveals himself to John on the island of Patmos where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, that is the Omnipotent One. The one whose power cannot be measured. And uh, throughout Revelation, Jesus is revealed as Almighty. I want you to notice how the book of Revelation speaks of the giving of the kingdom and the omnipotence of Christ and connects these together in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign Notice that connection of sovereign rule and the kingship of Christ and the dominion of Christ is over all things. The universal aspect of his reign and the execution of his power over all that exists assumes another thing about Christ that's difficult to remind or or to to think about, and that is this. If Christ is omnipotent and powerful over all that exists, it assumes another omni-attribute of Christ. He's omnipresent. How do we understand that? Because we know Christ is local. Jesus is local. He took on flesh. He still has that flesh and is in heaven. But what do we say traditionally is that Christ is one person, two natures. And his human nature cannot contain the divine nature. The one who is all powerful is also everywhere. And we realize his presence through his spirit right now who dwells with his church. His dominion is over all things. So his word then is over all things, and his all powerfulness assumes everywhere present. Christ actively rules over all things by the power of his word. Okay, so we have this wonderful statement of the person of Christ, but what does that mean for us? I hope it brings comfort to you. But well, let me let me just bring out a few things. You, you think of the one who rejects the sun, and the absurdity of living apart from the creator and sustainer of the world. Sure, I can live in opposition to the King, but it not only will not pay off, but I'll actually find myself actively against Him who is sovereignly bringing history to a climactic point. So you think of the one who rejects the Son. And you think of the connection of God's providence and this culminating point in history, which we know will be the dividing point in history, is that of judgment. Notice, notice the connection of providence and judgment that Peter makes in Second Peter. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? People are saying that, by the way, right now, right? They were saying it during Peter's time. They're saying it now. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You notice that phrase, continuing. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, who's continuing all things. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, but by the same world, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In other words... Existence itself is being kept and maintained according to this plan of God that he has that was in eternity, that is upheld by the Son, is working towards a point. And his providence maintains that and keeps that. And so what we see in this passage, directly related to the creation and God's active maintenance of creation, is God is moving history towards a moment where His mercy will be seen to lost sinners, to the praise of His glorious grace, and His judgment on those who reject the the Son will be to the praise of His justice. And God is maintaining all of those things through His Son to come to that point. To a day of judgment that we will all face. And the good news is that if you're in Christ, that judgment has already been made. But if you're not in Christ, that judgment awaits you for that day where He purifies all things according to fire. But if you're in Christ... It means that He's continuing all things and will maintain you until that day, and He will see you through to that day by the word of His power by which He upholds all things. Now, I know the doctrine of providence and God's sovereignty, it brings all sorts of difficult questions, questions such as, the: what's the origin of evil, or does God decrease sin? And answering those questions goes beyond the scope of our knowledge. And as Elihu tells Job, God owes you no explanation. But we know this, God does not create sin, but he permitted it and uses it for his purposes. Read the story of Joseph, where he says, you, you know, his brothers had sent him to Egypt, but he actually says, God's the one who sent me. And so here's where we find comfort in God's providence, is it is according to his Moral judgment and according to His purpose. In other words, all things that are happening are according to His plan that is perfect and that is good. And if that was false, if God's absolute providential rule through the Son was false, then Romans 11.36 means nothing. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. In other words, things aren't working towards God's glory then. It's just all random. We're just, you know, stardust that happened to evolve from some chemical reactions. The, you know, we're just here. Nothing really matters. Morality should just be thrown out. Or no, we say there's a God who is providentially ruling all things, and it's working towards his glory And we find great comfort in this because we read this, and you know this verse, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How could that be possible unless there was a God that is providentially actually ruling all things? It's for your good, it's according to his purposes. What a wonderful truth! But if you are in Christ, He loves you. And He's working all the things that are happening in your life for your good, even when we don't understand it. And this audience that's being written to in Hebrews, they were worried about persecution. They were worried about the way things seemed to be going in their world. They were looking at reverting back to Judaism. And what is the message that God gives them? God gives them this message. Christ rules by the power of his word, all things. Maybe you wonder, is God in control? Is his plan good? Maybe I should look for some other means of comfort. What word is it that you need to know today? What will bring you comfort? This, Would this bring you comfort, a Savior that just partially and controls and partially rules? Would this bring you a comfort that it, it, you have a Savior that's really not interested in you? Would this bring comfort, a, He's a Savior that learns and changes and reacts to time? Or do we draw comfort from a Savior that is omnipotent, omnipresent, that is sovereign, that is providentially ruling for his intended purposes, and whose scope of rule is universal, it is over all things? You see, the very nature of his absolute sovereignty, it brings us comfort, it brings us hope, and it sustains us through the difficult times we face in life rather than let us be distracted by those things that cannot be answered, let us rather look to Jesus, what he has revealed to us about himself, that Jesus is the one who upholds all things and altogether loves you from all of eternity and has forgiven you and will see you through all things by the same power, That he upholds the universe is the same power that he stands guard over your salvation and will hold you until you breathe your last breath and he welcomes you home. That is our Savior who upholds all the universe. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereign rule through your Son. And what joy and comfort and peace it brings us to our hearts to know that Christ is ruling providentially. We thank you for this word, and it truly is a comfort. When we see a world that seems to be out of control, a world that's largely in rebellion against you, we know that your dominion is over all things, and that all things are working according to your plan, and while we don't always understand it, we draw comfort from knowing it and knowing that it is true. For if it were not true, we know that, as your word says, you would be no different than the gods of Babylon. But you are the one true living God who providentially rules all things. I pray that, Father, these truths would be applied to our hearts now as a means of hope and comfort and and peace and even joy.